Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season four of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. It's been a lengthy hiatus since we completed season three of this series, so it's good to be back. Thank you to IG Markets for once again coming on board to fund and sponsor this podcast. Their involvement is hugely valuable, and we're proud to have such an award-winning CFD provider alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some of our most popular guests from previous seasons to get their updated views on the markets, and I'll also bring in some new guests too. I'll be asking them pertinent questions about how they trade the market and where they're seeing opportunities in the global trading and investing arena. The idea is that you, the listener, gain some valuable insight and education from these market professionals that may be of use in your own trading and investing. So with that in mind, let's get straight into this week's episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome back to another episode of Talking with Traders, and I'm delighted to once again uh, bring back Nick van Rensburg, independent trader and independent strategist, macro strategist. He's been with us on this podcast a couple of times before, and um, his insights are always absolutely uh, incredible. Nick, you're a fountain of information, so it's very much appreciated that you're coming back on the podcast again. Thanks very much. Let's get straight back into it because we have got quite a lot of, of stuff to talk about on this week's podcast. Um, the war in Ukraine, first up, is is front and center. We're up to day 55 of the war now, the, on the day that we're recording this. Uh, it hasn't gone according to Putin's plan so long, uh, so far. And escalation seems to remain an ever-present risk, which it, it does present us with some fairly worrying possibilities. Do you think there's any diplomatic way out of this, or do you think that's an unlikely possibility now as things stand? Hi, Garth. Uh, yes, so when we spoke last in early March, I thought that, uh, that the Russians would take over Kiev in a short order, and that's clearly not worked out according to plan. Um, from the looks of it, the deaths are significantly higher than what they estimated. Uh, up to this date, the estimates from the CIA are that they've lost more soldiers than what the U.S. lost in both Iran and uh, sorry in Iraq and Afghanistan together over 20 years, and this has only been, like you said, 55 days. Uh, I think the risk of escalation is very high. That's my base case. The possibility for diplomacy is quite low. Uh, I listened to a CIA, um, you know, the, the previous head of the Moscow desk, and he said that the, the game plan normally in this kind of environment would be that you escalate into negotiation, and that is to strengthen your negotiation position. Now, what you'd see is that uh, about a week ago, Putin appointed a new general, and he was known as the butcher of Syria. So clearly, this is not a, you know, this is not the type of person you used to be negotiating a diplomatic solution. Mm. Um, that's the first issue. And then the second issue is he, he gave him the brief that he wants to be done by the 9th of May, which is Victory Day. And Victory Day was the day the Russians celebrate, you know, beating the Nazis in the Second World War. Yeah. And um, you may remember that they've, you know, they continue to mention that there's a neo-Nazi element in Ukraine, even though the president is Jewish. Yes. So that's kind of, I think there's a lot of symbolism in that, and that's what they're working towards. Now, they've sent a lot of conscripts 
national servicemen back on the 31st of March, 1st of April, because their term was up and they've got less soldiers on the game. They're focusing on the east of the country. I sense that what they would be doing now is that they would escalate with uh, missiles, air raids, you know, chemical weapons, most likely, and even possibly a tactical nuke. Mm. And that's the really worrying part, isn't it? The tactical nuke. That's and, and, and that is where, I guess, NATO forces could potentially get involved, right? Uh, yeah, so at the moment, it's not clear if they would get involved. My guess is that everyone will get involved around negotiating peace at that point, if that mm. were to happen. One of the interesting things I didn't know before is that using tactical nukes, and a tactical nuke is essentially a small nuclear bomb, so it's something that will blow up a suburb instead of an entire city, uh, that that is part of their doctrine, part of their military doctrine, where in the US it's not part of the military doctrine. So that's not what that means is it's part of normal war. It's not something that the president needs to do, you know, with all the checks and balances that goes with that. Okay. So I think that the next month could be quite tough, especially, you know, for Ukrainians. And uh, what that would mean is I think if it escalates and you get to the point of chemical weapons, maybe a tactical nuke, you would then find that Europe would completely sanction all energy exports out of uh, out of uh, Russia. So up to, up to this date, they've only done coal but they're still importing oil, diesel, and um, gas, natural gas from Russia, and that would stop. So that would be, uh, my guess, is quite a big leg up for uh, oil and gas and also for diesel because diesel could become a real problem you know, down the line for Europe. This is their largest supplier of diesel, and Europe runs on diesel. About 45% of their passenger vehicles and 100% of their trucks run on diesel. Diesel is like essential for farming. It's essential for the transport of the goods from the farm to mills uh, and then also to stores. So it's key to your construction industry, your farming industry, and your transport industry. Mm, okay. All right. I guess in terms of asset classes to watch there, it's, as you say, oil, gas um, as, the, as the raw materials. But then there's a clearly knock-on effects as well uh, to, to other things from all of that because those are just such vital basic inputs um the other thing which has been strong or asset class that has been very strong as a result of this this war in ukraine has been some of the soft commodities um and i guess there's still likely to be upward pressure on all of that as you say diesel is a big input into farming but uh, ukraine remains one of the world's bigger exporters of of things like wheat corn uh, sunflower oil, etc. So I guess there's upward pressure on all of that stuff, which drives input inflation into a lot of other things, a lot of foodstuffs, right? Yes. And as we discussed previously, the fertilizer price has gone up significantly. You use a lot of it for the production of corn and rice specifically, but also for wheat. And the price increases that we've seen since March are not reflected at store level yet. The wheat would still be transported, you know, if it was sold, let's say, last month at a high price or this month at a high price, it would get transported to a mill, get turned into, you know, pasta or uh, meal or something of the sort, and then it will end up at DCs and eventually it'll end up at the store. So we're still a couple of months away from it hitting the consumer's pocket. So mm. the pressure on food is going to remain on the up. And if there is an escalation in the war, it's not going to improve the situation. Often yeah. people say, well, what happens if there's peace? And the issue with peace is that uh, 
Russian food exports are not sanctioned at the moment, so that would continue if the you know if, if the uh, Black Sea is not a war zone anymore. But in Ukraine, the problem is that a lot of the infrastructure has been destroyed, so it's not easy to to harvest it and then get it out of the country. In fact, they're stuck with quite a bit of uh, stockpiles that they can't get out of the country because the ports are under attack. So mm. this is not a short-term solution. There's no short-term solution to this problem. Yeah, and I guess the other issue as well on that front is that you know we don't know how many of those Ukrainian farmers are left or have left the country or even been killed. It's another another massive problem. Yeah, so in the areas where they're fighting at the moment is big farm country. So a lot of them would be soldiers right now. Some of them would have fled as refugees. And then a lot of the foreigners who farmed them are Europeans and they left before the war started or around the start of the war. Mm. So you've got a, a range of problems there. And then even if they were all to return, do you have the diesel for your tractor, for your harvester? You know, do you have the trucks? Are the road in working the roads in working condition, the, the uh, railways, the ports? Those are all practical issues that um, mean that this is a problem that will be around for quite some time. Mm, okay. And obviously, all of that leads into, into inflation, which is one of the topics we're going to discuss during the podcast. But first up, let's move away from Russia and Ukraine now, and let's turn our attention to China and the uh, zero COVID policy. I mean, I must say, I'm still quite amazed that, that they are following this, what is really an unworkable idea of zero COVID. I mean, what are they sitting with over... Th- how many hundreds of millions of people in lockdown there at the moment? Big number. Yeah, and I mean, the estimates are it's around 400 million people and that are affected in some way through lockdown. Yeah, yeah. And and I guess, yeah, I mean, you've sent out some some information. I've seen it elsewhere as well, talking about the supply chain bottlenecks that are building up around Shanghai and some of the other ports around China where there's a lot of ship shipping um ships that are just waiting out at sea, waiting to uh, to come into port. It seems like we're potentially sitting on the mother of all supply chain disruptions here. Yeah, so this one looks to be able to rival what we saw in 2020. Uh, Shenzhen was shut down. Shenzhen is the world's number three port. That was shut down until about a week ago for a couple of weeks. And now Shanghai port is shut down. And the, the waiting uh the, the, the number of vessels waiting outside of the port is higher by about 50% than what it was in 2020 during the harsh lockdowns. So for Shanghai, at least, this is a quite a significant problem. And same with Ningbo, which I think is also a top five port. Um, the other area of interest is that quite a large, there's a, quite a lot, large auto manufacturing hub just outside Shanghai. That's also being constrained. So a significant portion of vehicle production at the moment is shut uh, in China. Now, the government came out this morning and said that they're going to work really hard to fix the supply chain issue. But because you've already got such a large backlog, my guess is it'll still take many weeks to fix. And that's one issue. And then the other issue is, uh, you know, it will affect the demand for commodities because up to now we've had a supply problem in commodities. This is the first serious demand, potential demand shock for commodities. One example is if you look at air traffic in China at the moment, and this is across China, is down about 80%, 80% year over year. It is as low as what it was in 2020, but it seems to be lasting a little bit longer than what it was in, you know, than what it lasted in 2020. So that's jet fuel demand, which is oil demand. 
and um, obviously trucks aren't moving in and out of Shanghai. Truck drivers are saying they don't want to deliver food in Shanghai because they're scared they're going to get locked down once they're there, and this is not where they're from. So there's a whole range of different things. Uh, one of the other things which is quite interesting and makes this different is that um, civil disobedience has gone up quite significantly. And uh, Weibo, the, the government basically shut down the use of the first two sentences of the Chinese anthem over the weekend because it was used as kind of a, a revolution screen by people that were upset, you know, saying, uh, you know, if you're a slave, stand up, so forth. These are part of the first two lines of the anthem and, and it was banned, which is quite, quite, a, quite something in a communist country because they're big on symbolism. So I think the, the the civil obedience disobedience is definitely something which I, you know, which we haven't seen before, because they again welding people into apartments and killing pets and doing all kinds of crazy things. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. It seems like the president's basically tied his name to this policy, and the problem now is that the ego prevents them from doing something rational and walking away from it. So the cases are going up at the supposed death numbers, and you can't trust any of the numbers. But the supposed death numbers are very low. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that should really be giving them herd immunity and um, they're making quite a big scene of it, which is going to affect the rest of the world again. Yeah. Now, on the flip side is, uh, you know, if you remember back to 2020, what happened is when the lockdown started, Americans changed their spending from services to goods in uh, by a decent percentage because people were locked up you know locked up at home mm. and we are now moving the other way so we're moving back towards services so it is at a less crucial time um as far as goods demand is concerned you know it's not christmas it's not on the run-up to christmas it's at a time when americans are now spending more on services so stock build in the u.s has gone up so there's definitely more inventory now than what they were in two, uh, 2020 Uh, But clearly what it will do is it will extend the process and where it does become problematic is if it's inputs into other products like semiconductors or something of that kind of nature where it may affect downstream industries. Mm. Okay. All right. Now, inflation is uh, is a buzzword, buzzword all over the world now. Inflation and then obviously stagflation is also a term being bandied about quite a bit. Um, these higher input costs are being felt everywhere. And it, it kind of feels right now like it's a perfect storm between the back end of these masses of stimulus that we've seen being uh, pumped into the economies, particularly by the US and the Fed with money printing being at, a, at an unprecedented level during the pandemic. Um, but then we've also got supply shocks coming on the back of that now with vital raw materials uh, and inputs being affected as a result of the war in Ukraine and other things. And we're also, you know, so we're seeing high inflation numbers now. We saw the US inflation print last week at 8.5%. Here in the UK, we're up north of 7%. I mean, these are these are inflation numbers that the Western world has has not seen for a very, very long time. But at the same time, we, we're about to lap last year's inflation numbers, which effectively means that we're comparing against a relatively high base from 2021, from the same months of 2021, where inflation at that point was already running quite hot as well. So I, I guess the big question mark right now is where does inflation peak? 
when does it peak? You know, what what month of the year are we likely to see it peak before then the the, the lapping of inflation data starts to just come down because of the the high base effect? And then more importantly, I guess, is where do we see inflation settling uh, on in a sort of a more medium to longer term outlook? What is your view on that in terms of where inflation is potentially likely to peak and when, and and possibly then where does it settle? So before the war, I would have thought it would peak in March, April this year because of the base effect. Mm. Because of the war, that'll be extended. So it'll probably be sometime this quarter, being April, May, June. Mm. Uh, as to what the level would be, that's unclear. And then it, the reason why I think it's got some more legs is if you look at the PPI number that came out in March, the PPI is running at 11.5% roughly. CPI is running at 8.5%. So that means that the input cost pressure is still very strong. And the month-on-month number was big. You know, it was, I think it was up 1.4% for the month, which if you work it, if you analyze that, that's a very high double-digit number. Yeah. So the pressure is very much on. What you are going to see, though, is you're going to see the, the, put, the basket won't be all pointing in the same direction. One of the reasons why um, I wrote a report on, on inflation in May last year where I was looking at which countries you invest in because of inflation, And the driver of that report was that you saw the breadth of inflation measures increasing. So that means that many, many components of the inflation basket were all increasing at the same time. So if you think about a stock portfolio, if all your shares are going up, the portfolio does really, really well. When some of them are going down and some of them are going up, the portfolio kind of does average. And we're now getting to the portion in this quarter where you're going to see some elements will be turning down where others are still accelerating up. And that creates a mix and a number that's quite difficult to call because it's not all in one direction. Mm. Some of the ones going up, they are going up by a lot. So that is on the official CPI number. I think it peaks this quarter. My guess is that it will sustain itself at a much higher level than what people think into the end of the year. At the moment, inflation expectations are, five-year inflation expectations are about three and a quarter percent, 3.3%. I think on a five-year basis, that's probably correct. But I, you know, a lot of people are expecting 2% by the end of the year, 25 I think that's too low. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the, the, the increases that happened in March and April will take quite a bit of time to feed through into the system. So inflation will be here for quite a bit until we get to the point where there's demand destruction. Because the only way to solve this issue is through demand destruction. Uh, we're not in the short term going to increase supply because that takes a while. Uh, so the, the onus basically is on demand destruction, and that's either through higher prices, meaning that people substitute or stop buying something, or it's because the Fed hikes so much that it basically puts the economy into a recession and therefore reducing demand and leverage in the system. That's the other way of doing it, and I think we've probably got reasonable odds that they will head that way. Mm-hmm. They seem to be quite aggressive. Yeah, well, that kind of tees up the next question is regarding the Fed because they they do need to be aggressive, and we're starting to see um, some of the not not Powell, but the governors below him um, making noises about wanting to be more aggressive uh, to try and tame inflation because it does seem as if they actually genuinely are quite fearful of the level of inflation and the fact that it's that it could settle at a higher level. Um, in the past, there's always been this well-known saying saying in the markets, don't fight the Fed. But that's always been mentioned in a context of 
the fact that the Fed has been has provided this fountain of liquidity for as long as we can remember. Well, certainly over the last decade and basically ever since the the financial crisis in two thousand and eight. Um, don't fight the Fed, but you've got a different take on it now. You, you're saying don't fight the Fed, but for the opposite reason, and it's no longer a case of the Fed being, you know, the the fountain of liquidity that you didn't want to be fighting against. It's actually now the fact that the Fed is, the Fed's almost become the enemy of the market. You're listening to Talking with Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Yeah, so one of the interesting things is that since the Fed, I mean, if you look at the, the rate hike expectations, it's extreme. You know, market expects a vast amount of hikes. And I, d- I doubt that we're going to see that many hikes. But so the rates market is expecting a lot, but the equity market is basically 6% from all time highs. So the equity market's kind of laughing at all of this and going, well, you know, I don't care. And essentially, what, the, what Powell said at the March um, FOMC meeting is that the transmission mechanism is financial conditions. So if you look at, well, what's financial conditions? Financial conditions is the level of the S&P, the level of the 10-year yield, the level of credit spreads, how much that's moved up, how strong is the dollar. And um, yeah, so that's basically the, Mm. yeah, the dollar, credit spreads, short rates, sorry, short rates, long rates, and the S&P. So if you look at what's happened so far with um, financial conditions, the financial conditions index bottomed. Somewhere around September, November last year, at a level that was very far below any previous level. This was the loosest financial conditions in history. And since then, we've spiked, but the spike is below the lows of 2018. So if you think back about, you know, think back to 2018, in 2018, the Fed tried to tighten. Um, They ran the balance sheet down for a bit. And then there was a big tantrum at the end of 2018 and the S&P fell 20% in a month. Mm. In January, then Powell did his famous Powell pivot. Now, the level we need to get to, you know, for financial conditions to be equivalent to the Powell pivot is very far from where we are now. And because we've already seen treasury yields go up quite a lot, short-term rates go go up quite a lot, I doubt that that will be, you know, the, the areas which will push the financial conditions index up much more. I think it's much more likely that credit spreads and the S&P are the two things that need to give. Now, if you say, well, why, you know, how does that work? Why do they care about the S&P? It's simply that, you know, long-term rates is the discounting mechanism in the economy, the risk-free rate. Short-term rates is where everyone borrows against. Um, the credit spreads are how, where companies borrow. And S&P has got a wealth effect. And then the dollar affects inflation. The stronger the dollar is, the less inflation there is. So they want a stronger dollar, a lower S&P, higher credit spreads, and higher yields. That's essentially what they're aiming for here. And they, they believe that that will slow the economy sufficiently that inflation will get under control. And because we're only 6% from all-time highs, the, the, the main downside I see right now is for the S&P. So a very clear trade when you are not fighting the Fed 
and the Fed's told you that it's not your friend anymore, but your enemy, is that you want to be short the S&P. The upside in the S&P is limited because the higher it rallies, the more aggressive the Fed will be. So essentially, the, the, the Fed has got a call on the market. And then on the downside, the Fed put, which has always been there, is very deep out of the money. So that means it's probably 20% lower. I don't think the Fed panics until the market falls 20%. Uh, maybe from the highs, but yeah. 20% at least. So on the S&P, I would think you can get to between 4,000 and 3,600. Uh, credit spreads, I think, need to widen quite a bit more because that's still pretty tight. The only thing is there's a lot of energy companies in there and they're doing really well. So their default risk is quite low. Uh, so that's essentially the situation. The dollar can strengthen a bit more. But the dollar situation is, is quite different than normal. You know, normally... Yeah, the dollar would be steamrolling at the moment and it would be strong against every currency. And what we've actually seen is it's very strong against the yen, against the euro and against the pound. And it's weak against the Aussie dollar, the Canadian dollar somewhat, and then commodity currencies like Brazilian real and the rand. So the top performing currencies this year has been Brazilian real, rand, uh, Australian dollar. And then the weakest currencies have been the yen by far. Yeah. Weak currency has been yen. And um, also similarly in the euro. So it's a very mixed picture actually on the dollar. So that's not that clear. So until we get to the point where the dollar strengthens against absolutely everything, the, the only kind of outlet I can see is for rates to go a bit higher and for the S&P to go a lot lower. And when mm. I say a lot, I mean 10% would be a good outcome in my view. Yeah, sure. Okay. All right. And I mean, that also is borne out by the general technical structure of the markets, which I know is something you and I chat about from time to time. But I mean, all of these, the S&P 500, the uh, the NASDAQ, the Russell 2000, they've all got this sort of topping shape to them with potential for further downside to come based purely on the technicals. And you're now saying that there's, there's fundamentals to back that up. I guess another input to that fundamental discussion is the is is earnings obviously earnings always come into into valuations of course and what's interesting now is we're beginning to see the first uh, couple of of q1 earnings come through and this is q1 2022 so in other words the quarter that ends now at the end of march we're now starting to see companies reporting on that on those earnings and i guess the risk at this point is that we again we're lapping last year's numbers but if one looks back to 2021 and the first quarter of 2021 and look at the first quarter of 2022, the backdrop conditions are very, very different. And I, I guess, you know, those were high earnings that we saw in quarter one, 2021. It's going to be very difficult for them to match those kind of earnings, right? And and also, I would imagine in the outlook statements, there's potential for a lot of warnings for companies to tell us that, you know, the, the rest of this year is not going to be so easy either, right? Yeah, I would agree with that because you've got a multiple, uh, quite a few issues here. The first issue is that the base for the first quarter of last year was really high. So if you take an extreme case like Apple, uh, in the previous year, the first quarter had made about $45 billion worth of product sales. Last, last year in the first quarter, it made $72 billion. So that 27 billion of growth. Now that number I think is almost impossible to repeat this year because last year you had two stimulus checks. This year you've got the negative stimulus of inflation, food and energy specifically, which affects everyone. Plus you don't have any government stimulus. So you've gone from a very positive backdrop to a very negative backdrop. Plus you sitting on a valuation that is peak valuation on 
peak revenue. So the price to sales ratio used to be three to four times. It's now seven to eight. And, um, you know, the other thing on the backdrop there, just on the rating, is that you've got the Fed that's tightening. So if you go back to 2018, Apple fell 38% from high to low during the taper tantrum. If it had to repeat that today, it'll fall to $110 from $165, where it's trading at the moment. Mm. Uh, it peaked at about $182. So just on a taper tantrum, it's got very significant downside. If you look on an earnings basis, I think it's also got good downside. Uh, we, it reports at the end of next week. We'll see if this is the quarter that it takes the pain or if it's next quarter. But sometime in the next two quarters, I think there would be significant downside for their sales, especially product sales. I expect the service revenue, which is less than 20% of the business, will do really well, and that's high margin. But the core 80% business, which is very high margin, is um, I think will be in trouble. So, you know, that's Apple. Apple's basically held the S&P up. One of the key reasons why the S&P is only down 6% is because Apple's only down maybe 6 or 8% itself. Yeah. So if Apple were to fall, you know, Apple and Amazon are probably two that are at risk because of earnings basis. Um, because of stimulus. And if those two were to fall, then I suspect the rest will, you know, the, the rest of the market will come down. If you look at things like Facebook and Netflix, both of them fell and they haven't recovered. Mm. They still both within, you know, maybe 10%, 10, 15% from their lows and well, well off their highs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and obviously Apple and Amazon, um, are, they do make up a very, very heavy weighting in the NASDAQ and also in the S&P 500. So um, that's, that's something very, very important to watch in the weeks, in the weeks ahead. Another aspect, uh, which also is, I guess, a, uh, related to, to first quarter earnings is the fact that a lot of companies now go into a blackout period where they're not allowed to buy back stock between the quarter end and the time when they actually report their earnings. How big of an impact has share buybacks been uh, in the first quarter of this year and uh, and I guess over the last year really in terms of putting a bid under some of these share prices and if you remove that bid you know what is the what is the potential for these things to actually suffer some further downside based on the fact that you've moved removed a big buyer out of the system so the effect is very big I mean for last year I think it's about a trillion dollars of buybacks which is very significant mm. Um, and that's the equivalent of 5% of GDP that were done through buybacks. If you look at the first quarter, I think in Jan and Feb, it would have been very strong. Uh, probably more so Feb because Jan was also a blackout period. I suspect it would have slowed since March. And according to Merrill Lynch or Bank of America, the buyback intentions are falling quite fast. Now, there's a couple of elements to that. One is that the US 10-year Treasury, which was at 1.5% at the end of December, is now at almost 2.9%. So there's a very big increase in the discount rate, which means that the rating that people would be buying back at is much lower. And the market itself is you know, overvalued purely on that basis. The fact that the discount rate has gone up so much in such a short period of time. I suspect you're going to see strategists upgrade, you know, update their, their rates forecast for the coming quarter. And that may that should lead to downgrades for um for valuations, equity valuations over the next quarter. As you've got more uncertainty from inflation, my guess is that a lot of the buybacks will get cancelled. So I don't know if you saw the other day, Starbucks cancelled the $20 billion buyback. Yes. Um, as this, the old CEO came back. Mm. And I think you're going to see more of those. Uh, you know, when PPI is running this high, you know, companies have got to focus on their supply chains, their working capital, 
they you know they're working in an environment which is relatively uncertain and if you look at business sentiment it's falling really fast and generally when business sentiment's falling fast people tend to not do as many buybacks so i suspect that buybacks will slow quite significantly over coming quarters one on the valuation basis and also on the business sentiment basis then we go into the elections in november and we'll see what happens there i mean for the moment it looks like the democrats will lose so maybe that'll give Republicans a bit more uh, confidence at that time. But while inflation is high and consumers are under pressure, it's not really the time to be buying back equities aggressively, especially when they are, one, expensive and quite close to their all-time highs and the Fed is your enemy. Mm. It just looks like quite a, you know, like quite a bad con- you know, combo between a lot of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, on all of these factors, we've we've talked about you know the, the buybacks, we've talked about earnings risks, we've talked about financial conditions. All of these factors are effectively pointing in the same direction and, and saying that there's big potential for downside risks to equities, but there's really not much potential for any upside, any meaningful upside from these levels. So, I guess, how does one trade this? Yeah, sorry. I mean, maybe the one thing worth mentioning is that we've seen a significant shift out of bonds and into equities. So equities have broken out of a long-term uptrend channel, and it's you know accelerating upwards at the moment. So bond money is going into equities, and that may last until some point where bonds get attractive enough. Now, technically, when I look at the ten-year Treasury, it's trading at about two point eight nine percent. While it's above two seventy-five, I think it'll get to three and a quarter, three fifteen, three and a quarter. And if it gets through there, it can get to 3.75. I'd be surprised if it goes much higher than that because that alone will be quite a big shock. And I think what you'd find is in the 3 to 4% range, you'll find that um, investors would be switching back from equities into bonds. So then the balance funds and pension funds would become sellers of equities. Mm-hmm. That would be my take. Yeah. So you know we could have an asset allocation overhang if bonds keep falling. We have the Fed ahead of us and around us. Um, they're surrounding us at the moment. And uh, I'm not going to fight them. Other people are welcome to. Yeah. But I think the Nasdaq's quite a good, you know, would have the most downside as something that's got a higher valuation. Obviously, unprofitable companies would fall quite significantly if the Fed gets really hostile. Yeah. The reason why, I mean, one of the common kickbacks is that why would the Fed be trying to get the equities down? They're always the friend of the equity. Older, this make, doesn't make any sense. Surely they're going to panic and they're going to reverse course. I think that is right. They will eventually panic and they will eventually reverse course, but I suspect that it's much, much lower. And the reason why is you're in a midterm election year. So inflation affects all people, all voters. Where, So let's say everyone above 18 in the country, where the equity market only affects really the top 10 or 20% of the population. At worst, the top 40% to some extent. The bottom 60% do not own equities. So, you know, when inflation trumps, it's kind of like, uh, you know, when I worry about personal security, you know, you think nuclear war is worse. Well, (laughs) inflation is worse. It trumps uh, the, um, the Fed wanting to keep equities up. And because you've got an election here and the Fed is very, very far behind the curve, They've basically been running on the accelerators till March when they were still buying bonds. Yeah. And I think one of the things that are not well discussed is that 
when you know they basically gone from buying 1.44 trillion of bonds through QE and they now intend to do 1.1 trillion of QT which is uh, shrinking the balance sheet so they're going to run off the balance sheet by letting these bonds expire and somebody else will have to step in and buy those bonds now when you look at that you it's a 2.5 trillion dollar swing in liquidity which is 12% of US GDP yeah that's not something i want to get in front of i think that is that's one of the, the you know this is going to be the largest and the fastest tapering we've ever seen so it's much worse than what we saw in 2018 and i'll repeat that much worse than what we saw in 2018 and in 2018 apple fell 38% so yeah. if you say to me apple could halve it would not surprise me yeah wow if you say to me apple's going to double or go up 50% i would be very surprised yeah <laughs> i just think that i think that the you know the the backdrop is very tough for especially nasdaq or any any entity any growth stock anything with a high valuation is going into a winter for the next couple of months where the us is going into spring i think it's going to be winter for these type of stocks right. so the downside to me seems much clearer than what the upside is that's yeah. on the assumption the fed follows through and at the moment they will to follow through seem significant i mean even yesterday one of the uh, fed governors said that they shouldn't only hike by 50 basis points in may they should hike by 75 which is uh, you know that's not playing around anymore no no that certainly it is certainly is not i mean even the the discussion a few weeks ago of of hiking 50 basis points and not 25 seemed a bit aggressive if they're starting to talk 75 now well, that's a, another realm altogether I think one other thing maybe just to mention there is you know if you go back to in time the last time inflation was at this level uh rates were at 13% they're currently at 33 basis points <laughs> so it's we're not on the same planet i mean at the moment they are talking tough but they have not acted tough yet mm. i suspect that we're going to see them do in the next couple of months as they're going to be acting tough and i'm not sure that the equity market is prepared for it If you look at the buyers of equities at the moment there's been monstrous buying by retail investors and I don't think that US retail investors are quite they're not on top of the fundamentals of the companies they're buying never mind on the macro conditions they're uh, operating in. Yeah. So I suspect that there could be an element of surprise. Yeah, I mean and I know you and I have talked about market cycles and um the stages of a market booms and busts and what have you and that yeah these things are well telegraphed on the internet if you go and search for market cycle diagrams but you'll see that generally speaking the retail investor always gets his, gets involved uh the most aggressively at the top or just once the top has just passed so i guess again we yeah, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself but it does often rhyme and it may well rhyme again in this in this instance based on everything you're saying Um yeah and interestingly you know when somebody's protected you for a very long period of time you know because when you've been investing with the fed behind your back as your friend and it then turns out to be your enemy that's a level of betrayal most people don't you know don't take that well yeah so the and, level and, of panic and, could get quite interesting this is it and also i mean you, you know a lot of these retail investors they're younger they haven't been they've never seen a bear market uh in the last big real bear market that we saw was in 2008 2009 and so what is that now 13 years ago um there's a lot of new retail entrants into the market that have never seen a bear market all they know is a friendly fed they know that the fed has got the, the fed has got their back and um that's just a given and i guess as you say the element of surprise is likely to be huge when it eventually does come 
Yeah. Right. Um, Nick, let's just move away from that and let's talk about something else. And let's talk about gold specifically. Um, the gold price has been moving up quite nicely from a technical perspective. The break up above about $1,900 an ounce in the last two or three weeks is quite bullish. And it does feel as if it's got quite a nice solid bid underneath it. You've got an interesting perspective on this uh, in terms of what it, from a much bigger perspective, I mean, you've referred to Bretton Woods 3, and I know that's not your term, it's, it's from another strategist, but it's been quite well bandied about in the market. But let's just talk a little bit about that, the background to that line of thinking. It's specifically how it relates to the freezing of Russian reserves and and and, and the, almost the precedent that that is setting for for other governments around the world that have reserves locked up in western geographies and that the fact that it might yeah might begin to to make them start to question whether you know financial reserves hold up in in western geographies is such a such a good idea yeah i think if you go back to what happened in the beginning of march you know uh, i think we had our last podcast just after this happened Hmm. Essentially, the G7 came out and froze the Russian central bank's reserves held outside of Russia. And what was, you know, on European, US, Canadian soil. And what was interesting about that is it was, that was a Trump card, a proper, proper Trump card. Now, Zoltan Pozo, who's the credit strategist at, um, sorry, the interest rates strategist at uh, Credit Suisse, he calls this Bretton Woods 3. And he says that this changes central banking reserve management forever. So if you look at what central banks tend to do is if you're a country that runs a large ex, you know, export surplus, trade surplus, you tend to not want to bring all the money back into your economy because that'll be inflationary. So the reserve bank, the central bank would buy those dollars off the exporters and give them renminbi or Saudi currency or whatever it might be if you're exporting oil. And they would then invest it in US treasuries or on boons or something like that. And that's the money that got taken. Now, Russia specifically didn't have any money in U.S. treasuries, although it's got a sovereign wealth fund. Um, but all of this money got frozen, which they didn't anticipate, and they were obviously hoping to be funding wars with this money. Mm. What that meant is, and the reason why this is a permanent change, is that anyone who ever expects to have a skirmish with the U.S. or the G7 will now insulate themselves from this risk because this is now, it's just become very real. You know, what are you going to tell your populace? You've lost 1.1 trillion in US treasuries because you made a move on Taiwan and America was unhappy with you and they took 1.1 trillion of the country's reserves by freezing it. That's a very hard conversation. So mm-hmm. I suspect that China, who's got the largest reserves in the world, about three, just over $3 trillion, that they would be selling or probably are already selling their 1.1 trillion in US treasuries. Now, the question then is, well, what do you do with it? And who else could be doing the same? The countries that, you know, I think are likely to do something similar to China, as in not invest in Western currencies, Western bonds anymore, would be Saudi Arabia, China, maybe Pakistan, uh, depending on how the new leader turns out, and maybe a couple of other, you know, edging on row you know, countries. As these countries are big exporters, they would basically not be buying U.S. treasuries anymore. So this is a permanent reduction in demand for U.S. treasuries. That's the first problem. So not only is the Fed going to be selling bonds, not buying them, 
you've now got these countries that would normally buy them that are not buying them, and the ones that are holding them probably are selling them. So the the forces against U.S. Treasuries are it's not insignificant, which is also that you know why I wouldn't be buying the bonds just yet. Now, even though they've gone up a lot, you'd think you know we've seen one of the largest um, corrections in U.S. 20-year Treasury ETF. Uh, since it started in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, this is normally a time when you want to be buying it. But I think that this is a structural change. And in his theory, he basically says that what will happen is, uh, maybe it's a little bit of history on Bretton Woods. So initially in Bretton Woods 1, currencies were backed by physical gold. And that's where the whole issue about gold and reserves come from. Then Nixon in 1971 went to Bret- Bretton Woods 2 when he took the dollar off the gold standard. And we've been running fiat money ever since. Now, what this has done, Britain with three is not a global phenomenon, but it's a phenomenon for countries that is part of the petrodollar system or part of the export system where they would recycle their export earnings back into treasuries. So I think it's specifically Saudi and China. The two of them will not be buying these treasuries anymore. Like I said, that reduces demand. So what that means is they need to be investing that in something else. Now, what can they invest it in? You need something that's liquid. You preferably want something that's on your territory, but that is purchased offshore. So that would be gold. That mm-hmm. would be one way of doing it. Um, it's also bear- sorry, bearish for treasuries and European bonds. I forgot to mention that. European bond yields, you know, obviously is unattractive just to start off with because yeah. the inflation is going to go up. And now they've also got two less buyers. So a, com- a country like China, which exports a lot of com- exports a lot of finished goods and imports a lot of raw materials or commodities might actually stockpile physical commodities like uh, lithium or nickel or something of the sort. But I think it'll be buying, the bulk of it will be gold. And the reason why gold is a good reserve uh, asset is that it's got a very high value per unit of space. So to replace $1.1 trillion worth of bonds, you can basically get a room 40 meters by 25 meters stacked one meter high. That amount of gold is the same value than what, what $1.1 trillion uh, of bonds you know, would be. So they can, in theory, just fly it in with planes or you know, bring it in with ships and the military you know, with the naval ship with it or something of the sort and putting quite a bit of money into gold. Uh, I suspect what they would then do is that China, Russia, and Saudi will be trading amongst each other with gold and just offset the net balances. You know, maybe you'll fly a couple of ton, tons over for, you know, if you're a net importer, you'd be making up the difference with a bit of gold. So this is one of the, this is kind of a key theory, which I think has got quite a lot of potential validity. And what that means is that the, the demand for physical gold has just gone up. So a lot of people were scared that the Russians would sell their gold for cash I think it's more likely that China now has a significant demand for gold as it sells its treasuries. And similarly, you know, it's got a large sovereign wealth fund, so does Saudi Arabia. They would be looking to divest from U.S. assets from any country that they think they could have a skirmish with um, to make sure that they don't get those assets frozen or lose it in total. Mm. Those are the kind of things that I think will, you know, it's a permanent change. Yeah. And just in terms of, of, of that relative to annual gold production, then it's it's quite a it creates a pretty big um, supply versus demand imbalance, I guess. 
Yeah, so I'm not saying that they will buy $1.1 trillion of gold, but they'll definitely buy some gold. Uh, yeah. Just out of interest, $1.1 trillion worth of gold is about six years worth of production for one country, sure. which is a very significant amount of money. And I don't foresee that that'll happen. But what it means is that you've got a new, most likely got a new buyer of gold. They've always been a buyer of gold, but now they've got extra impetus to buy more gold. Yeah. And um what that tells me is that the longer term picture for gold is quite bullish and it's something that you do want to own. Yeah. Well, definitely that I want to own. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, look, I mean, tell I, you what I, you wanna own. <laughs> no, I mean, I likewise, like I, I do own some and, I, I, and, and some ETFs, gold mining ETFs, et cetera. The whole technical setup for gold, uh, the price of gold and, and also for the, a number of these ETFs all looking pretty, pretty good and they seem to back up what the, you know the fundamental story that you're, you're talking so I, I mean i'd go along with that it makes a lot of sense and it seems like all the drivers are pointing in the same direction in that case so nick i guess i mean we are drawing towards the end of our time but if i had to summarize all of this it looks like we need to fasten our seatbelts a bit for a bit of a bumpy ride in the months ahead still uh, yes, definitely. Uh, I'd say firstly, the walk should ex- escalate between now and the 9th of May because it's going to be pretty hard to claim victory if nothing changes. The only way for something, to, something in Ukraine to change is to escalate. So that's the first issue. The second issue is we're in the earnings season at the moment. And if the first quarter results weren't bad, my, I suspect that the guidance for the second quarter is it's quite likely to be weak. You've got the Fed, which is now your enemy, not your friend. You've got Chinese lockdowns, which could put pressure on commodities. So if commodity demand were to fall, if you have a commodity demand shock, if these lockdowns last longer than what most of us hope, then iron ore would be weak and the best companies to sell would be BHP, Anglo and Kumba. Uh, for the US, for the Fed, I'd say the Nasdaq's the best short. Um, for Bretton Woods, three long gold short treasuries. Uh, you don't need to do the treasury portion because that's got a carry. And obviously, it's fallen quite a bit, but I think it's very supportive of gold. It could also be supportive of some of the you know, specific metals because you find that a lot of the countries have got strategic metal reserves. Mm-hmm. So they'll buy anything that they fear they might be short of one day. And that's, in fact, one of the, you know, one of the releases that the U.S. is doing at the moment with oil. It will start in May and release quite a lot of oil to try and get the oil price under control. Right. to keep it from going up too much. So commodities, I think, for the moment remain strong, but the biggest downside risk, without a doubt, is Chinese lockdowns. And if you want to play it, it would be via iron ore because that's the one commodity where China is by far the largest buyer. They buy over 60% of seaborne iron ore. Yeah. And, um, you know, as we said, BHP, Anglo and Kumba are quite exposed to that. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, Nick, I'm gonna I'm gonna draw it to a close there. I mean, we've been speaking for what nearly an hour, and it's been fantastic as always. You, you're a fountain of information. Again, thank you very much for your time. I really do appreciate it. I think the listeners are, are, are uh, very spoiled to be able to get your insights and to have, have got your insights three times so far on this on this uh, podcast series. So it's excellent. Thanks again, Nick. Um, and I enjoy. I mean, I've enjoyed this conversation, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Pleasure. Thanks a lot, Garth. Much appreciated. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. 
please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.